It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's now less than 100 days until we can all go to the polls and vote in the European election. And by we, I also mean me. So I'm expecting to have my Belgian passport by the time the election rolls around in early June. So where do things stand? Who's up? Who's down? And which parties and issues are dominating the conversation as Europe gears up to vote? I'm Sarah Wheaton, your American and almost Belgian host of EU Confidential. According to the latest Politico poll of polls, this election could see a pretty big shift to the political right in many European countries and ultimately in the European Parliament. So what happens between now and then? Well, for starters, the political parties on the European level have been holding conferences, selecting their top candidates who will represent them in this campaign. Just last weekend, the European Left Party met in Ljubljana, where they chose the Austrian Walter Bayer to be their lead candidate. And this weekend, the European Socialists are off to Rome to anoint their spitzing candidate, Nicolas Schmidt. So he's the EU's current commissioner for jobs and social rights. And that means that he's going to be facing off against his boss, the current commission president, Ursula von der Leyen. The center-right European People's Party will officially make her their Spitzenkandidat at their Congress next week in Bucharest. Also in Bucharest will be a certain EU confidential host, bringing you inside what it's like to be at one of these European party jamborees. To make sense of it all, we've assembled a panel of keen election watchers. We're going to discuss why we're even bothering with this whole Spitzenkandidat process, as well as national contests and issues that are likely to be decisive for power in Brussels going forward. And later in the podcast, stay with us because we have a conversation with Salome Zurubishvili, the president of Georgia. Support for EU membership in her country is close to 80%, but the road to actually becoming a member is pretty rocky. And we all know that we need to have uh, the uh, justice reforms that uh, the EU is uh, pressing and pushing. It's something that we need to progress. That's coming up later in the podcast. But now let's welcome our election panel. I am here with a panel of election experts, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I'll start with maybe a voice that's already pretty familiar to you, Eddie. 
Hi, I'm Eddie Wax. I am a politics reporter here at Politico, and I cover the European Parliament. And every Friday now, up until the elections and maybe beyond, I'm writing a playbook newsletter about the EU elections. All right, Eddie, thanks for joining us from Strasbourg. Here in the studio next to me, Thomas. Yes, hi, I'm Thomas Thaler. I work as a senior associate director at APCO Worldwide, well-known consultancy firm. But uh, before that, I worked um, almost 11 years in the European Parliament as a policy advisor to several Austrian MEPs from the EPP group. Great, thank you. And zooming in from Rome. Yes, hi, Sarah. My name is Francesca Romana D'Antuono. I am the president of Volta Europa, together with Mel's Clubbers, who's my co-chair. I'm in my second mandate in this role. Great. Well, thanks to all of you for joining us. And we have you here because Ursula von der Leyen's announcement last week that she wants a second term as president of the European Commission sort of officially kicks off the EU election season, we could say. She's running as the spitzing candidate for the center-right European People's Party. But uh, we're not necessarily going to have a really rip-roaring race for the head of the commission. Eddie, you said that this is a, a fake spitzing candidate. Explain that, please. Well, actually, it wasn't me saying that. It was Martin Schulz, the former president of the parliament and leader of the SPD in Germany, who I interviewed last week. And he said that von der Leyen is a fake Spitzenkandidat for a few reasons, but, you know, namely because she's not running as, a, as an MEP. But, you know, leaving Martin Schulz aside, there are reasons maybe to despair a bit if you're hoping to have an exciting campaign season, because the main challenger to von der Leyen, who is a Luxembourgish uh, commissioner, Nicola Schmidt has been very unenthusiastic about criticizing von der Leyen, who has been his boss for the last five years. Well, I actually doorstepped uh, Nicola Schmidt earlier this week in Strasbourg as he was coming out of a plenary debate. Are you feeling enthusiastic, ready to rock and roll? Yes, sure. Absolutely. Otherwise, I would not do it, you know. Okay. I, I only do things I like. And he yeah. said that... Come Saturday in Rome, uh, when his Socialist Party will officially give him the nod, he said that a different Nicola Schmidt will, will emerge. But he said it's not really about attacking von der Leyen so much as pointing out the differences between the Party of European Socialists and the EPP. And we will debate. Okay. It's not uh, attacking her. It's uh, making clear our, our differences and also the differences between our political families. So maybe we will have a little bit of a, of a heated discussion coming up. So, Thomas, what do you think? Are we going to get this real debate? And does Schmidt kind of have any motivation to to really go after von der Leyen if we don't really think he has much of a chance of being the next commission president? Well, I think for Schmidt, he's in a difficult situation. His own party in Luxembourg is in opposition. Looking also at opinion poll figures, right now I don't see that there is really this momentum for the Socialist Party and SND to really become the clear number one. They're lacking behind 35, 40 seats in the opinion polls behind EPP. And I think this gap is more widening than closing. So I think for him, it will be a kind of a difficult challenge to win this election and to be seen as the clear number one. But uh, what was said uh, about Ursula von der Leyen, that she is not on a ballot paper, the same is true for Nicola Schmidt. Nobody in Luxembourg can vote for him. So I think it's a different concept of Spitzenkandidat than we had back in 2019. The league candidates, they will tour all 27 member states. There will be public debates, I guess, lots of interviews. I think they want really to reach out to people. I think both Ursula von der Leyen and also Nicola Schmidt, they are kind of uh, different characters still. 
after the elections, I think there will be a broad agreement between the major traditional centrist parties to agree on the most essential pieces of legislation. So both candidates, they will still need to work together afterwards, even if they kind of are keen to present themselves as representing very different opinions. I think it won't be as aggressive as you would see it in the United States. Francesca, you're the president, as you said, of Volt Europa, which is a much smaller party. You work with the Greens group at the European Parliament level. I think it's it's probably safe to say that having your Spitzen candidate win a majority of, of votes at the European level is not really a realistic prospect. First, can you tell us a little bit about Volgeropa? And then can you tell us what the thinking is behind actually participating in this process? Sure. We are born in 2018 as the first successful pan-European party. We are not only in the EU, we're also in the UK, in Switzerland, Albania and in Ukraine. Our first important winning was in 2019 in the European elections with Damian Berzelager elected in the European Parliament. There is also Sophie Intevelt, a very well-known actually Dutch Europarliamentarian who at a certain point decided to move from her former party to Bolts because it suits her vision better. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, we we are very ambitious. This is a party for the future, for creating substantial and and structural change in how politics is done, given that I think this is evident for everybody, right? The challenges of our time cannot really be faced at at national level. The idea of having Spitzenkandidaten was discussed, and we are going to have them, but we're not going to call them Spitzenkandidaten. I know this might sound trivial, but we've noticed throughout the years that European politics is sometimes for can I say it, like geekier people? And instead, you know, the vision we have for Europe is not at all one for the elites, it's one for everybody. So as a small symbol, we decided, okay, these are just going to be our lead candidates and Spitzenkandidat, it's something very cool that just a tiny part of the population understands. Then, of course, I mean, given our size and our perspective is, is very ambitious and some, some would argue even a bit arrogant, but I really like what was said before, you know, the idea for us is to really move the conversation. It doesn't matter if now we don't have actual chances. What we want to do is push for the political discourse to advance. Thomas, you want to weigh in. Francesca, I agree to a certain extent that this Spitzenkandidaten process is really for the EU geeks. If you actually look what uh, motivated people to vote in elections back in 2014, back in 2019, it was mainly the national narratives. Yeah, You were happy or unhappy with a government. Probably the elections are won and lost uh, based on the national narratives and not so much on what is happening at EU level. I will say as, as somebody working for one of the few kind of pan-European or Brussels-centric news organizations, it would make it much easier for us to write about the election the way we can write about a presidential election or a parliamentary election where you're choosing a prime minister. But yeah, it doesn't really work out that way in practice. Eddie, back to you. The major parties are getting ready to kind of really solidify their lead candidates. We're moving into these party congresses. What actually happens at those and what, what are you going to be looking out for? I'm about to find out. I suppose I'm, I'll find out in Rome this weekend uh, and then next week in, in Bucharest, where the EPP will be holding their, their congress. It's basically going to be sort of 24 hours of coffee-fueled stress running around, trying to meet people because, you know, all the national parties that make up these umbrella EU, 
constructions will will be there. So there'll be lots of important people there. There'll be lots of speeches from the heads of government. You know, it's going to be a love-in. It's going to be a, aren't we the best? Aren't we the greatest? Don't we deserve to have all the top jobs in Europe? Our ideas and our policies are superior to everyone else's. Let's all have nice photos and uh, high five. And that'll probably be what both sides will do. Thomas, you have maybe more of an insider perspective. Is that is that all that's happening at these congresses? Is just a bunch of love-ins and photo ops, or does anything important happen? When you're there at the party conferences, what happens behind the scenes to get a sense for the dynamics? And of course, it's also a bit the programmatic issues. All of you have read the troughs on the election manifestos. How is the reactions by current and future MEPs? Do they really endorse it? What do they say? What don't they mention? I think an interesting would be to, to really look what is said on a possible continuation of the Green Deal versus the new industrial deal that was recently very much discussed. What is the feeling on these kind of um, major decisions in which direction Europe may go in the next five years? And these impressions you only get with these uh, person-to-person interviews, and it's probably less so in what, what you hear in, in these political speeches by prime ministers. I also wanted to come in on what Thomas was saying, because here in Strasbourg, there are these two big topics, which are defense and the Green Deal, and that's the big overarching themes. And that's maybe why we're also seeing the socialists and the center-left struggling, because the way that the pendulum is swinging at the moment is more into the territory than the traditional center-right territory of industry, competitiveness, and defense. And those are topics that the center-right have always been on top of. They see it as their terrain. And now the socialists are having to come up with a manifesto where the question that I'm hearing a lot from fellow journalists is, what are you going to say in your in your manifesto on defense? So, you know, those are topics that they're not necessarily masters of, even though, of course, they, they are very pro-Ukraine and believe in having a strong economy. But the problem is the public debate is shifting away from them. So can they still be seen and perceived as being really on top of those topics. Francesca, what do you make of this of this idea that the narrative at the moment has been sort of captured by the right and the center right? And how can other parties deal with that? I fully subscribe to what Adi just said. Right now, we have issues at stake that are more traditionally in the right wing slash center to right agenda. But I don't believe this is happening just now. I, I believe this is the end of something that has been happening from a very long time. The traditional leftist parties or even, you know, self-proclaimed progressives have been not really able to propose concrete or believable agenda and not really been able to be on, on top of their constituency even, you know, like now the image that you have almost everywhere in Europe, at least, is that the traditional portrait of someone who is in that area that political area is of someone who's like maybe an international cosmopolitan, speaks many languages, but very detached from everyday's problem. And this is an issue that all the, the center-left has to, to face and to consider. I don't believe that defense per se is an issue from the right. I don't believe, of course, that, that the economy is an issue from the right. But I believe that there is really a lack of believable narrative, considering how these parties have been performing so far. And to be frank, this is obviously also where we originate from. You know, there is a huge political void at the moment that is very important to fill because the current center-right and right-wing parties are shifting very much to, to way too much on the right in a very unhealthy way. I feel there is an urgency to recreate a progressive side that speaks uh, 
the language of people that are not necessarily not even listening to this podcast because maybe they don't even speak English, you know? Staying with you, Francesca, we've been talking about these European level issues, but we also hear this conventional wisdom that the European Parliament elections are 27 different races. So we're about 100 days out. You're looking at the campaigns across your different member parties. Are things playing out on European issues or are you looking at different national discussions? That's my everyday. So I'm glad you asked this question. So it is true that these are 27 different elections. And you see that even before the campaign. This is something, you know, that I think is not really in, in the debates, because maybe it's, I don't know, less, less sexy to discuss, but even to qualify for the election in different countries is a completely different story. So let me just give you an example. In the place where I'm sitting at the moment, Italy, to run for election, the effort required is not so much on the campaign, but really to appear on the ballot. In these very days, the far-right party from the government is passing an amendment that makes it even harder so there is a chance that Valtitalia won't be able to even be on the ballot. And this is true for so many other places around Europe. This is true for France, where to be able to run, you have to, I don't know if you know this, I find this hilarious. To be able to run, you have to print your own ballots. And this means if you want to run alone, not in a coalition, the upfront investment is like 2 million euros. It's something crazy, you know, if you're a new party. What is this, you know? <laughs> the effort is unbelievable. So these are 100%, 27 different races. Then when it comes to topics in a certain part of the population, it's easy to understand how certain issues are not really just national. We mentioned defense before. Obviously, nobody thinks that this is, you know, a national issue now. Um, climate change. But even when it comes to the economy, I mean, when you think about it, everybody now understands that our economies are interconnected. So it is easier to enter with a pan-European discourse in this sense. Mm -hmm. Thomas, what are some of the national races that you find most compelling right now? So, of course, uh, when you look at different member states, you first look at uh, the big member states because a swing one, two percent and one or the other direction would immediately mean a bigger swing in MEP seats. So Germany and France are in this sense more relevant than Luxembourg or Malta. And I think looking at Germany, one interesting point is that uh, you have a significant uh, rise of the far right, the AfD. So they could well end up with uh, up to 20 MEPs. What about you, Eddie? Well, I'm following the countries, the biggest EU countries, which are going to return the most MEPs due to their size and the way that the parliament uh, calculates how many MEPs each country gets, because there's going to be a crucial vote on the next commission president. They have to be confirmed by MEPs and by the 720 MEPs who will be in the next legislature. And it will probably be Ursula von der Leyen facing that vote. So, you know, the more MEPs from the EPP, the easier it will be for her, although not necessarily because the French EPP party, Les Républicains, just uh, recently said they didn't want to back her. So there are interesting changes in different countries. But I think, you know, Italy, Spain, France, Germany are really the four key ones to look at in terms of whether Ursula von der Leyen can kind of squeeze through a parliament that is going to look a lot more far right, bigger on the left as well, less Greens. So it's going to be difficult for her to get that approval, I think, from the next parliament. Francesca, any key races or contests that you're that you're most focused on? Obviously, we have a successful story in Germany, so that's that's going to be a focus. And there are countries in which we see good prospects. The Netherlands, as I mentioned before, but also Portugal. So now, for example, we're running in national elections in Portugal, and our candidate is frankly doing pretty great. 
And then there are a series of other countries where the race is more open. One would be Belgium, because the candidate we have there is Sophie, the, the MEP that I mentioned. Oh my God, that woman, she has an energy. I, I wish I was Belgium to be able to vote for her, you know. A very special place for me are Greece and Cyprus. In the past two years, I saw the funding of the party and the successes, which were really impressive. There is really willingness for something new, you know, wanting to have something new to vote for on the ballots. But then again, will this translate in MEPs? This is yet to be seen. Yeah, well, I mean, really interesting different set of perspectives as far as looking, you know, at the big parties in the big countries, whereas a party like Volt Europa is sort of looking for maybe smaller races where you can get a few key wins or have a prominent candidate like Sophie Teveld who can really help make you part of the conversation. I want to move to our last question. We've been talking about the nature restoration law, the industrial policy, these EU-level issues. But one interesting and clearly campaign-related dynamic that we saw this week was Commission President Ursula von der Leyen kind of sent some mixed signals about whether we're going to move forward with Ukraine accession before or after the election. And people here in Brussels sort of saw this as her struggling to figure out how to balance maybe competing demands between the national political leaders who will be key to her keeping her job versus sort of this broader spirit of helping Ukraine and expanding the EU. Even beyond Ukraine, I mean, is this an issue that regular voters are are paying attention to? How does this EU spirit, EU accession issue play? Thomas, can you tackle that one? What happens in Ukraine is, of course, of big relevance to voters all across Europe, especially on the eastern part of our continent. At the same time, there's also lots of populist voices where they might be a bit more hesitant to which extent they want to support Ukraine. But I think across political parties, coming back to what we discussed at the the beginning, there is a consensus that defense is one of the decisive uh, political debates that we'll have. We might have a defense commissioner. Sikorsky from Poland is uh, repeatedly mentioned The EPP manifesto says we need to spend 0.5% of our European GDP on defense. So there is a lot of uh, messages that go in the same direction. With Ukraine, I think they are willing to come closer to the European Union. But I think that is a process that will take a while. That is also what Ursula von der Leyen, in a certain extent, reflects. Of course, she is dependent on the support from political parties from the center-left, but also on the right of her. So I think sometimes in politics, you are then a bit hesitant to come up with some new proposals before the elections and wait until the elections are over, and then let's negotiate what are the next steps. But I actually would doubt that uh, she's not supporting Ukraine. She's traveling there on a regular basis, showing all solidarity and support possible. Eddie? Yes, of course, she supports Ukraine. And and I agree with what Thomas said. And she's even been there to Ukraine recently to kind of mark the, the second year anniversary of the war. But it is also true that there is a kind of populist sentiment that's picking up maybe in the east of Europe, where people like farmers, for example, don't like this prospect of huge extra country joining the joining the union and we've seen farmers dumping perfectly good grain on on the border so is she trying to balance the expectations of ukraine on the one hand the very fulsome support that the eu has for ukraine with this kind of agricultural wave of disgruntlement coming from the east that of course it's touching brussels as well no one no one can be immune from you know the, the sort of rage of farmers at the moment you don't want to read too much into it. Maybe there are just technical issues in the in the commission. 
but a cynical person could see that with the elections coming up, does she need to campaign on we're going to get Ukraine into the EU? Probably not. She's probably done enough as a commission president to support Ukraine and possibly going too much in that direction might spook some people. All right. Thank you, Eddie. Francesca, we'll give you the last word. I didn't know I was a cynical person because I am actually siding with the last thing that Eddie said. I think, you know, that as a very wise political animal, she's playing her cards around this. I think, though, that the question around enlargement, you know, is, to be frank, I think that's an inevitability. And I'm also happy about this. I would like to see the EU way bigger. But I do think that we need to fix certain very structural problems inside the union and how it works and how democratic representation is carried out if we're serious about this. And there's really not a lot of time, you know, to do that. What I wish for the next parliament is that it gets serious about doing a political action to go in that direction. Well, we have two political journalists and two political strategists, so we probably veer to the cynical side. But I very sincerely thank you for this uh, realistic and interesting conversation. Eddie, Francesca, Thomas, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. So as we just heard, EU enlargement is not really an issue that we're likely to see play out in the coming months. It's just not really an animating issue for voters inside the EU. Then again, it's a driving factor for voters in countries that want to join the bloc, one of which is Georgia. After the break, we'll hear from Georgia's president, Salome Zurabishvili. Stay with us. Salome Zorabishvili was born into a family of Georgian immigrants in Paris, and she actually went on to serve as France's ambassador to Tbilisi for two years. Then she entered Georgian politics. And was elected president five years ago. A strong supporter of Georgia joining the EU and NATO, she's often at odds with her own government, which is led by a newly appointed prime minister by the name of Arakli Kobakitsa, known in the past for his Eurosceptic rhetoric. My colleague Gordon Rapinski, the lead author of our new Berlin playbook, sat down with the president at the recent Munich Security Conference. 
They talk about the divisions in Georgian politics over the country's European future and the harsh realities of neighboring Russia, which occupies about 20% of Georgian territory, the regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. You're in this interesting situation that you're actually very pro-Western, but uh, your government isn't in the same place. How do you handle that situation? Well, it's a difficult issue to know in what place the government is exactly because it has been changing. In short, this government has been the one that came into power, supported as president, a very pro-Western president, endorsed my candidature. And in the constitution that they amended at that time in 2018, they introduced the European Integration Pass and the NATO Integration Pass, which was a very strong message that was sent to the EU and to NATO. And uh, after that, the situation was maybe aggravated at the time of the start of the Ukrainian war and declaring rhetoric uh, that we are not going to follow sanctions and things like like that. So there has been since 2022, I would say, a shift of the course. But uh, the good surprise of 2023 is that, not surprise, but good decision, the decision of the Commission and then of the European Council to get the status of candidate. But at the same time, there was a change in the rhetoric of the government and the governmental party of the Georgian Dream that came back to a very pro-European rhetoric. We have seen European flags over the streets. So the only thing that I can hope for that it's something that stays with us we are in that process. We have a new prime minister. How's your relationship with him? My relations uh, are not good with anyone because I've been attacked directly, accused, strangely enough, of sabotaging the uh, European pass of Georgia. They have tried this impeachment procedure, which was maybe the high point of the anti-European trend, but it didn't succeed. I'm here. They will be continuing on that European integration pass and maybe the controller of us being on the right track. Are you on the right track? How do you evaluate the situation? You have the status of candidacy, but uh, reforms are being demanded. The reforms are demanded, and we are at the very beginning of the new government. So, But at the same time, I'm thinking about what should be done, and I'm preparing a common platform that could be signed and supported by all the political parties, whether governmental or not, in order to have for the Georgian population and for the uh, voters a clear program of what we can do, we should do. Do you think the EU is too strict on the expectations on Georgia? Well, I think that's the role of the EU and it's helping. And we all know that we need to have uh, the uh, justice reforms that uh, the EU is uh, pressing and pushing. It's something that we need to progress to have a more stable economy, a more stable democracy. Ursula von der Leyen has just announced her second term candidacy. What's your expectation towards her as a person? How should she deal with the Georgia issue? I think she has been dealing with it in the same determined way as she has been dealing with the Ukraine issue. She has been a very strong supporter of Ukraine and uh, we have appreciated a lot the way the recommendations of the Commission were formulated at the end of past year. And I think that uh, we have, with Mrs. von der Leyen, a very strong supporter of uh, the 
trio of the countries, Moldova, Ukraine and Georgia. And I'm sure that we can count on her. The issue of Russia invading and occupying parts of neighboring countries is not only an issue in the Ukraine, but obviously in Georgia it is as well. You made the point that the response towards Russia wasn't correct in the first place. What do you think the international coalition or the West or, or Europe should do now? Well, they should not do what they've been doing up to a certain point, which is too little too late. But I think things are changing. Paradoxically, I'm quite optimist. We are in the situation which uh, is not completely new with the European Union, that major crises, and we've seen that before with the Balkans, major crises really make the EU evolve and progress and try to catch with uh, the reality. And what we're seeing now is really the EU realizing that security and defense should be more than just words, but they need a really strong policy of security and defense. We need a strong European Union to uh, give, together with NATO, those security guarantees. Question on Alexei Navalny, because I think the whole conference here in Munich was shocked about the news coming in. Do you think there should be a deliberate answer? I think that it is a tragedy for human rights, for the opposition in Russia. It's a confirmation of the brutality of the uh, Russian regime in all directions. We have, unfortunately, the same thing happening on our occupied territories. We have people that are kidnapped, some are killed. Some are returned in very poor conditions. It's become almost a daily or monthly fact that people that live on the border, the delimitation line, do not know where this delimitation line passes. And if they trespass, they are kidnapped and sometimes never returned. So this brutality is for us not something new. It's probably something for the Europeans that are less directly knowledgeable about the way uh, the Russian regime behaves. Do you think the German efforts on Ukraine and supporting the fight against Russia are sufficient? It's never sufficient as long as Ukraine is not able to recover its whole territory because here I think that there is no halfway. It's not possible that this war that has been so costly for everyone but in the first place for the Ukrainians finishes without Ukraine recovering its whole sovereignty. Everything is needed in order to allow Ukraine, which has shown an extraordinary courage, and after two years to be still in the same mobilization mode is really something that probably Putin never thought about before starting. But they need to be supported and to be supported with all the possibilities to allow this war to finish as quickly as possible, but not without getting what were the objectives, which is to answer the aggression and recover sovereignty. And what is your personal take on Olaf Scholz's action in that regard? Well, I think that very good positive is the change of position of both Germany and France over the recent period from being quite aloof on the question of integrating those countries, supporting those countries. I think that today we have both Germany and France that are among the most supportive countries, together with Italy and Poland. There is kind of unanimity 
strong unanimity, not just a middle ground, but a strong unanimity among the Europeans, with some exceptions that we know, to support countries like Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. And that's what has allowed the progress that has been made. But again, it's not sufficient as long as Ukraine is still fighting. And as long as Russia, and that's something I like to underline, as long as Russia has not been made to understand that it has and should have, like any other country, borders that it should respect. You can take uh, three Russians, they will draw a different map of Russia. And that's something that is uh, fueling instability, confrontation and tension. So they should be pushed back in what is their own borders. That was Gordon Rapinski talking to President Salome Zurabishvili. We'll be sure to add a link in our show notes to Gordon's Berlin Playbook. And that's all from us this week. Make sure you follow EU Confidential wherever you listen to podcasts. And send us an email with comments or ideas for topics or guests. We're always happy to hear from you. I'm Sarah Wheaton. Thank you to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and to Deanna Sturis, our senior audio producer. See you next week from Bucharest, if you're there.